This is the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. Today, teaching minister Tim Peace will be teaching the message. Happy New Year to all y'all. If you don't know me, my name's Tim. I'm the teaching minister here, and uh, glad that you're with us here in the room or online. Uh, Just really grateful. I uh, have the opportunity to bring the message on the first Sunday of the new year. And I wanted to start out uh, as a a person that loves talking about weighty matters. Uh, Wanted to tell you how my fantasy football matchup went. (laughs) So if you were here last week or you watched online last week, my good buddy Jeremy Rao uh, was our announcement guy, as as well as drummer, but he did announcements first. And he uh, asked you guys to uh, do the most ridiculous prayer request ever. I hope none of you did it, but, um, and he prayed for more important things. But if you did, you might be wondering, how did Tim fare in the fantasy football championship? Well, I'm going to tell you, and if you don't know fantasy football at all, um, I'm about to sound like the teacher on Charlie Brown to you. I'll keep it brief. So I was matched up against uh, our good buddy Lou in, in fantasy football, um, and he's, he likes to play the villain in our group. And so our, our folks were rooting for me to win, I think, mostly. Well, my brother was rooting against me, but that's, that's just my brother being. Anyway, uh, so uh, I was in a tight contest with Lou. And on Sunday, because, you know, you get points for your players. On Sunday night, I went to bed down eight point something points with one player that was projected to score enough for me to win. I woke up Monday morning down 10 point something. The, the ESPN system deducted two points randomly for no reason. I lost by 1.45 points. Tough, tough deal. On January 1st, as a sort of get out of my system, New Year's sort of thing, I decided to open up the fantasy football app uh, and look at it and accept my defeat once and for all. When I opened the app, there was confetti, and it said, congratulations, and it had a little first place trophy. The algorithm gave me my two points back, and I won. <laughs> so that's how my uh, year started. Um, Otherwise, though, I don't know if you noticed, we were all waiting for 2020 to end and uh, woke up the next day, and guess what? Everything felt the same, except that I won fantasy football. But everything else felt the same. We were still huddled at home. There was still a pandemic raging, and still just that level of uncertainty of not knowing when things might return to Uh, some semblance of the normalcy that we used to have like nine months ago or whatever. And that got me thinking, um, there's a lyric that a band that I like to listen to sings in in the course of one of their songs. Uh, They say, take some time to waste a moment. And for whatever reason, when I started reading over our passage and thinking about not only the message today, but the series that we're about to get into, I thought about the fact that I have become good in my life at wasting moments. And I don't mean that in the I'm good at relaxing way. I actually mean it in the opposite. I'm not good at relaxing at all. 
It's the problem that I have is that I have the tendency to always battle whatever circumstances I am in, in my own mind. Maybe you track with me here. When I have a day off and I'm supposed to relax, I am notorious for either thinking about, fretting about the things that need to be done that I should be doing that I haven't got finished yet. And I'm always told by my wife, you need to take a day off. You need to not worry about this stuff right now. You need to recharge. But then it never fails that when I am in the midst of doing something important or maybe I have a struggle or a concern, all I want to do is ask God for a way out of it. (laughs) Anyone else there with me at all? Take some time to waste a moment. You know, I think a lot of times we think about faith and we operate in light of what we think about faith in the same way. We, we have a tendency to waste the moment. What I mean is this. Um, when, when things are, are going good, we, we say, we declare, we think that we want God to make us more faithful. But what we really want in the moment is probably for the good times to keep on rolling. And when things are not going as well as we'd like, we suddenly want God to just blast us with the right amount or appropriate amount of faith to get us through it, to fight through it, to persevere, maybe to make it even better a situation than what we are in at the moment. And we're not often too good at recognizing when a moment shouldn't be wasted and where we instead have a moment to live faith out. I think, if anything, the pandemic, the COVID-19 that that took root and has still persisted through 2020 is a great example of this. Many of us have thought about how we want this thing to end, and we want to get out of it, and we don't look at it as an opportunity for faith. Although, to our credit, I do hear people talk about faith in context of that. And one of the small ways that I I hear that discussed is these little things, (laughs) right? The underwear on our face that we have to wear. Anyway, you know, it's a weird thing that the mask, because, you know, we all get, you know, we're in a, we're in a culture where we fight each other about everything now. Like we can't ever agree on anything. And yet, even in our disagreement over the mask, I hear a lot of people in church talk about the mask in the context of faith. I've heard plenty of people that choose not to wear a mask as a sign of faith. They say to themselves, or they say out loud, you know what, I'm not going to let the anxiety, the worry, the fear of the moment keep me from living my life. And one expression of, of, them, uh, of them doing that, not being repressed in life, is to not succumb to the mask wearing. It's a sign of fear, and they choose what? Faith over fear. That's the phrase that we often hear. So they're thinking about faith. And on the other hand, if, if you're like me, I'm a, I'm a, I don't like the masks, but I'm a mask guy. I wear my mask as, as best I can, although I'm wildly inconsistent, as we all are. I think about the fact that what if, the, what if the mask might do good for the people that I'm around? Then I think to myself, well, if that is the case and I believe that, then my expression of faith is to put my mask on even though I don't like wearing it. To credit on both sides of the aisle on the issue, 
Both are thinking about faith being expressed in the way that they act. And that is a good thing. We should be thinking about the moments of life as an opportunity to express faith. And in fact, what we're going to see in this new series that we're starting today and going through February is we're going to learn all about what faith expressed looks like and why it matters to us, and more importantly, why it matters to God. How it matters to God. What God says about people that live out their faith. And that's why we've called this series, Don't Waste the Crisis. Because the truth is, is that when we are in difficult times, no matter how great or how small they may be in the moment, a crisis is an opportunity to live out faith. And faith is the place God wants us to not only lean into, but live out of. And how do we know that? Well, we know that because the core of our series is going to look through the book or a chapter from the book of Hebrews. And this chapter is chapter 11, and it's a chapter that oftentimes gets called the Hall of Faith or the Hall of Heroes of Faith. Because what the writer does is he gives a little definition near the beginning of of the chapter about what faith looks like. And then he describes people within the Old Testament who exemplified faith, whose faith was credited to them by God as righteousness. And so each week, we're going to take a look at a figure uh, in each ensuing verse uh, that, that was living out faith and had that accredited to them as righteousness. But then we're going to go back as we look at the verse and look at the story that unfolds. But in order to do that, it's important for us to get a grasp on what the text actually says about faith. How does the writer of Hebrews define faith? Because faith is one of those words that we use in church contexts and, and, and even in more broad society, the word faith is, you know, used. I believe there was a song in the 80s, we gotta have faith. You know, it's, it's, it's a word we use, but we don't think about what it means. And we want to have our bearings here. So I want you to follow along with me in the first three verses of Hebrews to see what the writer says about faith. They write, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith our ancestors received approval. By faith we understand that the words were prepared by the word of God, or worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. All right, so the writer describes faith in this sort of dichotomous way. On one hand, faith is seen, and yet it's not seen. What does that mean to us? Well, what it means in simplistic terms is this. Faith is the unseen motivator that propels our visible and seen actions. When somebody lives out faith, they do it by their deeds. What does James, who we studied just a little while back, say? Faith without deeds is what? Dead. You show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works, says James. That is a consistent theme throughout Scripture. Faith in God's eyes is the unseen thing that brings about visible and seen actions. 
So you can claim to have faith all day and you can turn it into a a head or a heart proposition, but if it isn't on display for people to see that you are living your faith out, one can call on the question whether you are living by faith. But at its root, it is still an unseen thing. And he adds something to this too, because faith is not just this unseen motivation that leads to our actions, but faith also... Um, presents itself as the assurance to what is not yet seen or experienced to the one living in the present moment. So there's also like a, a, a gift or a promise at the end of faith. And we know what this is. It's the promise that we will have life everlasting with God because of our faith. Our faith in the here and now has a positive outcome in the long run. So scripture also not only holds the unseen and seen view of faith, it also talks about the short view of faith and the long view of faith. Does this make sense? Hopefully this is trekking with you. So this is how the Hebrews writer describes faith. And then what he's going to do is he's going to go on and each verse in this chapter, he's going to identify a person of old, the ancestors that exemplified faith, as a, a, um, as a person that is accredited by God as righteous because of their faithful deeds. And the first one that he mentions is in verse 4 of chapter 11, and it is a man by the name of Abel. And so I want you to read this verse with me, and then we're going to go look at Abel's story in the book of Genesis. It says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain's. Through this, he received approval as righteous, God himself giving approval to his gifts. He died, but through his faith, he still speaks. So this is what Hebrews says about our buddy Abel. So this calls the question, well, who's Abel? Who's Cain? What are we talking about here? Well, you have to go all the way back to Genesis 4 and If you're like me and you like doing year through the Bible plans and you started on January 1st because that's what all good Christian people do at the near, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Then you probably just read the story of Cain and Abel. But if you haven't, I would encourage you to do a one year Bible plan and follow along with me and then you'll read it. So anyway, this is the story of Cain and Abel. It happens in Genesis chapter 4. And this is what it says, so I I, want to read through this and tell you about it and tell you what we can draw from this about faith. Because the story is a little bit odd when you've just read the verse in Hebrews, because the emphasis there is on Abel. The story in Genesis is on his brother Cain. So follow along with me here. It says, now the man knew his wife Eve, the man being Adam. So this is Adam and Eve, by the way, just as a background Uh, They were the first people. They're created. They're put in the Garden of Eden. Everything's good. They sinned by eating fruit. God told them not to. They're banished. They go on. They have two sons in this chapter. The first name Cain, the next name Abel. So this is what it says. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Next she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, for his part, brought the firstlings of his flock 
their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord, uh, sorry, I just lost my place in the Oh yeah, and the Lord said, uh, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven me from the soil, and I shall be a hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and anyone who meets me may kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord, uh, and the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who came upon him would kill him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. All right. So this story is actually the first in a sequence or pattern that we will see unfold in the Old Testament. And the sequence or pattern that's unfolding here is this. For whatever reason, it always ends up the case that God favors not the firstborn child, but the second or the last. Which is... uh, antithetical to the culture of the day and even to our modern times. I mean, as a firstborn, I know that I'm my parents' favorite, and I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, not really, but uh, they like, they love us just the same. Anyway, uh, no, but here's the deal, though. Like, we all know, like, when you have your first kid, like, there's an attention that you're able, your, your attention's undivided. You can focus, uh, you can care for, uh, you do learn things uh, on the go, which is, uh, probably messes them up. But anyway, there's just a lot more attention paid. And by the time the second comes along, you know, I don't have a second. I hear from family and friends that do, that it's kind of like there's this attitude of, ah, we've got this down. Yeah. Ah, they landed on their head, they'll be all right. Just rub some dirt on it. When it's the firstborn one, you're like, oh my gosh, we gotta call the doctor. See, the thing is, in our culture and in most cultures, the firstborn tends to be either stated or just because of circumstances, the prized possession in the family. And God is upending that for some reason. But it's not because God has some special preference for the later born children. It has more to do with the fact that God says, you know what, your norms and your, your view of assigning value to a person isn't the same as mine. First is not just the best by virtue of being first. What God values and what God credits as righteous is faithfulness. 
And so we see this pattern play out with the very first uh, two sons of Adam and Eve. Cain is born first, Abel's born. They both have different responsibilities. Abel has the, the, the flock to tend to, uh, whereas Cain tends to the earth and the soil and the grain that comes up out of that. And so um, neither of their responsibilities are marked as, as better than the other one. What we end up finding out is for some reason, and, and we're not told, we can make some guesses about why, but God favored the, the uh, offering of Abel more than he did Cain's. Now, later on in Scripture, we're going to find out that God calls his people to give of their first fruits. You don't give to God your leftovers, your last. You give your firsts, your best to God. And so while the story doesn't tell us that that's what happened, by knowing the rest of the story as it plays out, we can maybe surmise that that's what's going on here. But it's just a guess. All we know is that God favored Abel's offering over that of Cain's. And Cain's attitude was that he was going to become angry and his countenance was going to fall. Now, God shows his love of Cain. And I want you to catch this. Even though God has reversed the first and the second in the way that the world views it, it never says that he despises the firstborn. Because what does he do when he sees that Cain's uh, anger has befallen him and his countenance has fallen? He comes in to turn him on the right path. He says, hey, why are you angry? And we can only imagine, well, you like my brother better than me. And we, like, like every sibling, like, goes through this, right? He got it first. All this stuff. Well, now they're, they're playing sibling rivalry to God the Father. And he, God tells Cain, hey, if you do what's well... I'm going to accept your offering. But if you don't, and you continue on this path, sin is crouching at the door. And we find out very quickly how Cain responds. Pulls his brother out to the field, and as my wife and I were discussing the, uh, the old, like, really long Bible movie that got made way back in the day, you know, uh, <laughs> Cain takes some sort of animal bone and hits his brother over the head and leaves him for dead in the field. It doesn't really say how he killed him, but he does. And then God uh, asks him about it, even though God knows what's happened already, because he wants him to fess up, and he gives this horribly wicked line, am I my brother's keeper? Uh, yes, by the way, church, uh, if you ever ask that question, about your loved ones and even those outside of your sphere of influence. Yes, you are your brother's and sister's keeper. That's kind of the whole deal with the church. But anyway, so that was a bad question to ask. And then, and then Cain starts whining over his punishment. Oh, it's too much. God could have just uh, smote him right then and there, but he didn't. He definitely gave him some consequences, but in God's grace, he spared his life puts a mark on him to keep him from being killed by somebody else. So, now, as I said, this is a little strange. So we read the Hebrews verse, and now we're looking at the Genesis story, and the Genesis story is all about Cain. 
why do we suddenly hear about Abel? I mean, Abel's not really ever mentioned again in the Old Testament or really the New until we get to that spot in Hebrews. Well, here's the deal. In Hebrews, the writer is wanting to teach us about faith and what faith looks like. And so he just goes in this chronological order, naming faithful person after faithful person after faithful person. And you'll notice that, uh, that Abel's faithful deed wasn't some like Indiana Jones step on the, on the path without being able to see it. No, he gave an offering, which by the way, if you get back in the ancient Near East world, it was pretty normal to give offerings to deities. They didn't do anything out of the ordinary. But God saw Abel do something faithful in response to him that he called him to do, even as simple as it was. And that faith far outlived and outlasted the faithlessness of his brother Cain. So much so that by the time he's mentioned in verse 4 of Hebrews 11, he takes the bulk of the story over his brother who committed the sin. Because the truth of the matter is, and this is what I want us to remember today, faith will always outlast the crisis. Faith will always outlast the crisis. In the moment, faith had repercussions that I'm sure Abel didn't even know about. I mean, it wasn't like, it wasn't like he knew that he was going to be murdered when Cain brought him out into the, wherever he brought him out to. He was just doing what he thought God wanted him to do and living faithfully by that. And it resulted in an immediate horrible end. I really hope siblings don't always do this. <laughs> kind of eerie. But his faith, as the writer of Hebrews says, still speaks today. Now, how is that? Well, because if all of us that are called to follow Jesus, that are called to live out faith, decide that in every moment, every opportunity that we have, that we are going to live faithfully like Abel and like the others that will be described, every time someone lives faithfully, it is the faith of the ancestors before living on into the present and then going beyond ourselves. Sin and faithlessness dies with the dead. And their life becomes forfeit. Cain died. Abel died. Abel's faith lives on. Cain is just a mere footnote. And, you know, so when I think about this idea that faith outlasts the crisis, I, I think about what happens at the new year every single time we come to this point. You know, everyone loves to turn their calendar over. They see the number change on the year. It's a new day, a new year, time to be new. So what do we do as people? We make resolutions, right? <laughs> a lot of people do. They, they, they're going to eat better. They're going to move more. They're going to spend less. They're going to save more what have you. That's what we all say. And then by mid-February, they don't do it. Um, but they, 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 they decide that this is what they're going to do. And why do we make those kinds of resolutions? What is it about? Do, do we think 
that it's going to make us better people, uh, that we're, we're going to be more attractive, is life going to be easier? Is that what the goal of life is, is to, 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 to look better, to have an easier life? Well, I want to challenge uh, myself and, and all of you in the room and all of you at home this year to maybe set aside the resolution making this year. Because we're going to start out in these first two months of the year talking about faith. Faith is defined by Scripture and faith as exemplified by the people of Scripture. And the truth about faith is that faith is, is, is a calling for each and every one of us in the ebbs and flows and the good and bad of life. I can make a promise to you that 2021 is another year that will be full of uh, good times and easy times and difficult times and bad times. And it'll ebb and flow just like every year does. As much as we, we hated the pandemic and all that it has wrought upon us in 2020, uh, many of us also have stories of silver linings that came out of it. I think I've told you guys before, I got to see my kid crawl and walk for the first time and say words and all these sort of things that he would have been in childcare had the pandemic not hit. I also went through some difficult things with job loss and family getting sick and things like that. And all of you went through similar things, both good and bad. And guess what? 2021 will be no different. At some point, this pandemic will leave us, but the good and bad and ebbs and flows of life will still persist. And when it does, the ebbs and the flows of life will always present opportunities to live faithfully to God. Regardless of how big or how little the crisis is. And the beauty of the teaching of faith in Scripture is that we are not told uh, to put off faith based on the moment. It is like a, a, uh, a foundation for us to always go to. It is the unseen that can lead to the visible action. And in the case of the folks in this story that lived faithfully, not perfectly, but lived faithfully in these moments, their faith lives on. And not only that, it becomes an impact for those that try to live faithfully now. Why give all these examples? Because the church that the Hebrews author was writing to in the time were trying to live out their faith. And they needed to see that people before them have lived out faith as an encouragement and inspiration to continue living faith on now. Your faith now, your faithful living now, can inspire beyond the moment. It outlasts the crisis. And so I want to challenge each and every one of us this year to take the opportunity to live out faith. And if faith is something that occurs uh, both during the big crises and in the small mundane moments, then what will that look like for us? You know, the pandemic's not over. I know we all wish it would be. I certainly do. But since it's not, what if, you know, since we can't undo what we did or didn't do, you know, nine months and going, what if we decide today, you know what, I'm going to approach this crisis right now 
in a faithful manner. I'm going to think more about what does it look like to live faithfully in this moment? How can I love my neighbor as myself? How can I care for people in my home? If all of us are, are stuck at home in the moment, how can we love our immediate families if, if, we're, if, we're, if we're relegated to texting uh, family and friends that live outside of our home, how can we check in and care on them even if we can't be with them and touch them and hug them and do those things? What does it look like to live out faith during the middle of this pandemic as it still goes on? Or forget the pandemic because it's going to end at some point. What is it in your life right now that you know that you need to live out faithfully to despite the troubling circumstances? We all know marriages get difficult, right? There are times where you have a bad day, your spouse has a bad day, and so the easier thing is to just not do the faithful thing in the moment. And I'm not talking about like the real bad faithless thing. I'm even just talking about like um, you decide that you're going to play silent treatment because you're not in the mood to have a difficult conversation. The only person that's going to see that lack of faith moment is your spouse. Oh, and God's watching. (laughs) But what if choosing faith, as described in Scripture, means, you know what? I'm not going to play that game, and instead, I'm going to love my spouse by having the difficult conversation, even if it's tense. Or if you're a parent that's stuck at home with a toddler, I wouldn't know any experience of that. What does it look like to love your kid? Or maybe, maybe your kid is older and they're in school and having to do all this online stuff, which I hear is just a blast. What does it look like to love your kid when it gets difficult? When you've been stuck at home? When they don't want to do the schooling? When they're driving you up a wall? When you can't focus on work, what does it look like to love your kid in that moment and not do the faithless thing? You see, you may not see the benefit of that faithful decision in the moment. If I choose to have the difficult conversation with my wife out of love, it may still be a struggle and I may not feel better about it. But the faithfulness will outlast that moment. The faithfulness to my kid will outlast that moment. What situations in the knit and grit of everyday life for you is an opportunity to live out the faith? Because again, the faith of Abel was merely giving an offering he was told to give. That's it. Didn't do anything special. Now, it had devastating immediate consequences for him. But he's written down in Hebrews, and every single person that ever reads this book ever again will know the name Abel and his faith. And he'll be an example of faith. So I want to challenge you. Get rid of the resolutions. Recognize that faith outlasts the crisis. And choose faith in every possible opportunity. Don't waste the moment. And don't waste the crisis. You know, speaking of examples of faith, we take communion every week as a church family. 
I was telling our, uh, our, our, our team this morning, we, we do a huddle and we take communion together because many of our volunteers are doing things and they don't get to sit in the room together as a church body to take with the rest of the congregation. So we do it together in the morning. And the, the interesting thing about Jesus and our relationship to him is we often think about Jesus as the object of our faith. And he is the object of our faith. But Scripture also teaches that Jesus is the subject of faith. Jesus is the exemplar of faithfulness to the Father. Scripture teaches us that he was obedient to the Father even to death. Jesus was faithful before we were called to have faith in him. He is both the object of our faith and the subject of our faith. And so when we think about exemplary faith, I will also challenge you that as you hear about these imperfect people in the story and their acts of faith, remember that they are not a hall of heroes. There is only one hero in Scripture. And we remember his heroism, his salvation, his lordship that he brings to each of us when we take communion every single week as a church. So I ask you to join me and take this bread and eat it. This is his body, which is given for us. And I ask that you take this cup and drink. This is his blood, which is poured out for us. Please pray with me. God, I thank you for a new year, a new day, a new week, new month. God, even though uh, we, can, we can talk about, you know, whether people should do resolutions and all this stuff, it is nice to wake up to new. New opportunities, new moments, opportunities to do it better, to do it right the first time, to do it right moving forward. And we thank you for the grace that you have with us that though we are sinners, that we are imperfect, that we missed the opportunities before, we can turn to you and ask for your strength to help us to do it right and to do it faithfully in the here and now and moving forward. And so God, I pray that you will be with us, not only in this series as we contemplate what faith looks like and how it's exemplified in all these individuals we read about, but God, I pray that we will be inspired uh, to live out 2021 as a year of faith whether it's mundane, unseen faith, or whether a big opportunity of faith uh, presents itself for us to live out, I pray, God, that you will help us to say yes to you and being obedient to your calling on our lives in all circumstances um, and with your strength and through your spirit. Because we know that that faithfulness uh, not only uh, is a light to the world around us, but it lives on beyond the crises of the moments and struggles that we face in the here and now. So help us to choose the better way and to stick to it this year. Thank you for loving us, and it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.